We open our Bibles together tonight to the New Testament book of Colossians, chapter 2. I'd like to say a few things about the book of Colossians before we read chapter 2. The book of Colossians is one of the four what we call prison epistles of the Apostle Paul that is written during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. And that imprisonment is described to us in Acts 28. We would call it when Paul was under house arrest. And it was at that time that he wrote the epistles to the Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and one to Philemon. The striking thing about the church at Colossae was that the Apostle Paul himself had never set foot in Colossae. He did not, he's going to say in the first verse, he had never seen them face to face in the flesh. He had seen some of them, especially a man called Epiphras. During this time, in, this, in the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, uh, when Colossa was organized, Paul was teaching in Ephesus, using that as his center, and men would come to him from various places. Laodicea, as mentioned in this epistle. And these men, Epiphras, would come and be instructed by Paul in, in the city of Ephesus, and then he went back to establish the church at Colossae. So Paul had himself never been there. The epistle is written because there was uh, what we call the Colossian heresy. The Colossian heresy, the heresy in this particular church, was like a cocktail, a poisonous cocktail of many different things. There was the denial of the deity of Christ. There was the worship of angels. There was the promotion of the idea that there was this secret experiential knowledge that if you really came to it, you came to a higher level. There was the advocacy of an aesthetic life that through self-denial, one would gain higher spirituality. There was a will worship. There was a lot of do's and don'ts being uh, published in the church there after the commandments of men. So the apostle writes this to confront those heresies. And the theme of this epistle is the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. So in the chapter, we're going, to be, we're going to be seeing that emphasis of Paul upon the supremacy of Christ. Verse 3, in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 9, for in him, in Christ, dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Verse 10, and ye are complete in him. You are complete in Christ who is the head of all principality and power. Our text is verses 6 and 7. Reading God's word in Colossians chapter 2, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding 
to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words, for though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man, therefore, judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increases with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. I pray that God will open his word to our hearts tonight. And I call your attention in this applicatory service to verses 6 and 7. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. This word of God is a call 
to every believer, and it's a call especially tonight to you as a graduate, that you must find sufficiency for all things in your life in Jesus Christ alone. It is a call to walk in Him, which means in this chapter not just what we would normally think. It does mean what we would normally think of walking in Christ, drawing our strength from Christ. But it means specifically, walking in Christ means that we receive, we look to Him for everything necessary for our souls, no matter what we are experiencing. We must find, as a graduate and all of us, all things necessary for our salvation in Jesus Christ alone. We must never add anything of ourselves as works whereby we have attained salvation. We must never pride ourselves in who God has made us as now being the ground of our salvation. But we must walk in Christ, that is, fall before His cross and wonderfully received by grace full salvation in His perfect work. But this Word of God means more than that. It means also that for all of our life, for the decisions that we have to make, for the wisdom that we need, for the guidance, for the right or wrong of things, for comfort in sorrow, for strength in trial, for every fear that would ever arise in our hearts, we must turn and look alone to Christ. We must walk in Christ, in His sufficiency, for peace, for joy, for happiness, for whatever and whenever our soul has need. We must find that in Him, walk in Him, in His sufficiency. The apostle would say to us tonight, God would say to us, beware, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words, beguile you as a graduate, come along to your side, speak very nicely to you, complimentary to you, with persuasive words, and say to you, yes, you have received this tradition, this religion, this Jesus Christ, how nice, but it's not adequate, or you should add to that. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, says the apostle. They will spoil you. They will corrupt you. If you add the point of the apostle in the entire book, and in our text is, if you add anything to Jesus Christ, you have subtracted him. You have spoiled him. You haven't enriched your life. It's not that, well, we have Christ, but now we will enrich our life with other things. If we have anything other as our trust, as our strength, as our wisdom, then Christ and Him crucified, if we add to Him, we have subtracted Him. Walk in Christ. And therefore be rooted as a young person and built up in Him and established in the faith as you have been taught. 
In this chapter, the Apostle Paul in the first verse said that he was in a great conflict. That is, he was in a deep agony of his heart. And the agony of his heart was for people that he hadn't even seen, the saints in Colossae. And he wanted their hearts to be comforted. And he wanted their hearts to be woven together, he says in the second verse, in the love of God. And he wanted them to live with a full assurance of understanding. And he's pointing them time after time to the riches and to the treasures that are in Christ. And he's saying to them and to us, walk in Christ. You are complete in him. If you add to Christ, you lose him. But when you walk in him in your life, you will have everything that you need. And your soul will lack nothing. Let's look at this call to walk in Christ. It's a passionate call. There's only one way of doing that. And then there's a sure evidence of walking in Christ. So we note in our text, verse 6, that there's one main verb or imperative exhortation, walk ye in him. And then looking into the context, we note that the imperative of our text follows verse 5, which was a commendation a word, a good word spoken to these believers in Colossae. The apostle says that even though I'm absent from you, I have beheld your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. He's not writing then to a people who outwardly have apostatized or fallen into the ditches of ungodliness, but he is commending them that they have an order or a discipline, that they were living a disciplined Christian life in godliness, and that they had been steadfast in their faith. Even though there was this swirl of heresies around their head, God had been good to them, and there were evidences of His, His grace among them. And though He commends them, he immediately follows it with an imperative that they need to walk in Christ. It wasn't as if they weren't walking in Christ, but he says you must still earnestly walk in Christ. In other words, though he sees that from many points of view they're doing very well in their faith, he doesn't simply say, well, you're good to go. But he calls on them, walk yet in Christ. So for you as a graduate, for you as youth in this congregation, God has blessed you. And we are rejoicing in your graduation, and we are rejoicing in much that we see in your life. But the Word of God says, now that you've graduated, it's not a time to go into ease. It's not a time to rest on your laurels. You must not simply say, well, we covered that and we're good to go from here forward, but we, there is an urgent call that you must continue now earnestly to walk in Christ. In the parking lot tonight, there are makes of cars of every variety with all kinds of things in these cars and colors. 
One thing true of all of those cars in the parking lot, regardless of the make or what the brand or whatever it is, they have two gears in the car. They have park and they have neutral. But there is no park and there is no neutral in the Christian life that you have been taught. There are only two gears in the Christian life. Forward or reverse. And we are in one of those gears right now. It's either forward, walking in Christ, or it's reverse, going backwards. So the apostle, having commended them, says, as you have received Christ Jesus, as you are surrounded with all these blessings, it's not time out. There's no time out. There's no park. There's no neutral. There's no drift. There's no time just to drift along. Not in the Christian life, there's not. Walk in Him. Keep it in drive. The call is an urgent call. For the verse 6 begins, Since ye have received Christ Jesus the Lord, since that's true, then it must be also true that we continue to walk in Him. To receive Christ Jesus the Lord, the apostle means by that that they had received the teaching of the Word of God. And with that teaching of the Word of God, they had received the work of the Holy Spirit in the Word of God so that they had received a true and living faith in Christ Jesus. When he says, ye have received Christ Jesus the Lord, He does not mean what is so commonly presented in the church world today, that the Lord, this supreme sovereign Lord Jesus that the whole epistle is talking about, that this Lord, though he is sovereign, nevertheless doesn't want to force them to receive him and simply offers himself to them, and he's waiting and dependent upon the depraved will of men and women to actually receive him, No, that's not what it means. But it means that when one has been given faith by the Holy Spirit, that that faith is not passive. A true and living faith is not passive. But it is now by faith to want Him. It is by faith to understand I need Him that he's not simply a luxury or a nice thing, but he's the necessity that I need as my Savior. To have received Christ Jesus means that our hearts, by grace, are open to him and want him. Our hearts are not cold about him. They are not ashamed about him. But when we are saved by the wonder of his grace, working in our hearts, then we embrace him. We receive him. And I said that this means to have received Christ. The apostle is talking especially about the means. There were means whereby these Colossians had been converted. They had been converted through the preaching of the man called Epiphras in this epistle, who had been instructed by Paul. He came to Paul to be instructed in Ephesus in the home of, in the school of Tyrannus. He'd probably spend the week studying with Paul. He'd go back on the weekends and he would 
preach that gospel that Paul was teaching him. And through those means, through instruction, the grace of God had brought them to faith. And now they had received him. They had embraced him. And Paul says to him, now you must continue to walk in him. And I would have you note that this is the same for you as a graduate, for you as young people, children, as believers. In covenant mercies, we have been taught the truth of God and given faith whereby, and now note the words he says, whereby we have received him, Christ Jesus the Lord. You and I, you as a young person, have not been taught a culture. You have not relieved a, received a belief system. You have not received one of the various isms in this world. You have not received the religion of your parents. You have not received traditions. We have received him, Jesus Christ. Faith, true faith, does not receive a culture, does not receive a tradition. It receives him, Jesus Christ, to whom we say, I belong in life and death. So walk in him. The word walk in the scriptures is, of course, a very beautiful idea. It it expresses communion. It expresses fellowship with Christ. It expresses his protection. It means that he's our refuge. To walk in Christ means obedience, submission, trust, reliance, worship, of Christ. This word walk in Scripture has especially two things that are important for us to understand. The first thing is when the Scriptures speak of walk in Christ, it refers to our life as we live that life from the heart. A walk in Christ is not simply in outward conduct. There is outward conduct when we are in Jesus Christ. There is a way of life. There is that which can be seen, but that's not the essence of a walk with Christ. The essence of a walk, the essence of a person's walk is the direction of the heart. And so the scriptures say, We must not walk in pride. That's when the heart, the direction, outwardly it may be a respectable life, but it's it's being driven by the heart of pride. We must not walk in the lust of the flesh. We must not walk in bitterness or envy. We must walk in Christ. That's referring to the heart. The Christian life is a walk A person's life, no matter who he is, Christian or unbeliever, is a walk of their their heart. 
your walk of life is the direction tonight of your heart. And this walk then is in Christ. That's the second thing. It's a walk toward Christ. It's a walk of fellowship with Christ. It's a walk of communion with Christ. Of love to Christ. Amos 3 verse 3. Perhaps you remember the words. Can the prophet ask, can two walk together? Unless they be agreed To walk with Christ means my heart has made an agreement with Christ. He's my Savior. He's my friend. I live out of Him. We read in Genesis 5, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. In that world before the flood, Enoch walked in close fellowship with God, not God in the flesh, but by faith with God. And it was seen that he walked with God. And therefore the world wanted him gone. And God translated him. So that to walk in Christ means that from the heart, as made new by God, we want every detail of our life to be in communion with Christ. We want to submit then to his will. We want to obey his commands. We all want to seek to please him in what we do. And then, yes, it becomes visible. It becomes a conduct. But walk with Christ is not simply a conduct. The conduct can be a cover, covering over a heart that does not know Christ, but knows what to do. Walk with Christ is the heart of fellowship with Christ. And there's an urgency in the passage. And I say again, the urgency here is built especially upon the object. He's saying walk in Christ because of the sufficiency of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Understand that in Him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge of God. In Him There is eternal strength. You are complete in Him. Walk in Him. Draw everything from Him through a true faith. Don't turn to other additions to Him. Have you received Him? Have we received Him? We've been taught the truth as it is in Jesus The Holy Spirit has been active. He's always active under that teaching. You've been taught in school. You've been taught in home. You've been taught in the church. Have we received him by a true faith? Embrace him. Not an ism. Not a tradition. Him. Walk in him. Because he's sufficient. He's full. He's complete. You won't have any lack. You won't. You don't need to look elsewhere. You don't need to say, well, my Christian upbringing is is inadequate. It didn't cover this. You're not going to be in a lurch with him. Walk in him.
I like the hymn, Be Thou My Vision. O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that Thou art. Thou my best thought, by day or by night, walking or sleeping, Thy presence, my light. Graduates, walk in Christ. How do we do that? Verse 7 answers that. There's one way. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith as ye have been taught. There the Scriptures are giving us two figures from the creation. One from the realm of agriculture and the other figure is taken from the world of construction and building. If we are to walk in Christ, the only way is to be rooted in Him. Rooted in Him. And so the Scriptures are referring there to agriculture, specifically to a tree and to roots. The Bible often calls the believer, refers to the believer as a tree, a tree planted by God, a cedar tree, an olive tree, a tree planted by the river uh, brooks where, to receive moisture. And the purpose of those roots of a tree are twofold. They're for moisture for the life of the tree and therefore stability so that the tree is not blown over. The purpose of the root then is for moisture and therefore to be rooted in Christ means that the moisture that your soul needs, your heart needs under the heat of this world and under the sun of our sins, my heart shrivels and my soul becomes dry. But rooted in Christ, there's moisture in Him. There's the water of life in Him. And therefore, roots are created by God to sink, especially in dry moments, sink their roots deeper and deeper into that soil where it will receive the moisture. The tree is created to sink its roots into the soil. And so God is saying to you as a young person, to all of us, send your root of faith down into Christ, down into Him. Don't dabble around with all kinds of things, experimenting. Experimenting perhaps now in different religions, wanting to make a concoction of faith that is a little bit drawn from different things because it's so important to be well-rounded and to respect every type of idea. And so I'll adopt a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this, and I'll get something that fits me and suits me. Don't do that. Sink your root into Christ. Don't sink your roots into the, says the apostle, the traditions of men, the philosophy of men, the teachings of men about what a woman is or is not, about what gender is and a choice, about where we all came from, evolution, 
about sex and what sex is and its purpose, don't try out various things. Then you're not walking in Christ. You're apostatizing from Christ. You're forsaking the fount of living water. But go deeper, deeper into Christ. And if you say, Pastor, I am, I'm trying, but it's still a struggle. Temptations are still such a struggle to me. It's hard. I say to you, no, God says to us, then the answer is, dig deeper. Dig deeper into Jesus Christ. But roots are not only for the moisture, but they're for the stability of the tree. A tree without roots is going to fall in a storm. And so, rooted means Christ gives us stability. And storms come into our lives. They come because of our own sins. They come under the will of God in a host of ways. They come unexpectedly. Again, if we seek, sink the roots of our soul, if we sink the roots of our heart into someone or something, other than Jesus Christ. You will never, we will never have peace. We will never have fullness. We will never have healing to our souls if we try to heal them, feed them, in anything other than Jesus Christ as ye have been taught. The Jesus Christ who is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the Jesus Christ who is the head of all principality and power. Roots are moisture and stability for the tree. The moisture and the stability I like to compare to prayer and Bible reading. Prayer sinks our roots into that divine grace of God in Christ Jesus. And so prayer is a struggle. But through prayer, be as a young person. Ask God now in this part of your life to make you Faithful in prayer, personally. What a blessing, what a strength that's going to be for your life. And then also Bible reading. We're living in a culture, we're living in a culture of a whirlwind against Christian truth, against the truth of God the Christian's God. We must send our roots 
down into him. We must not simply be able to mouth Christian truth. But we must spend time again and pray for this, that in your life as a young person, a time regularly in God's book. I've been over this with you before. I'm not against devotionals. But we must not always be reading devotionals and having, hearing somebody else tell us what it means. But God has actually given you this book. And he wants everyone here as a child of God to peer into the pages of this book every day. Because when you're doing that, you're searching the truth of the eternal God written for you to be your strength and your guide and to form your mind so that you can think after God in this world. We must be rooted and built up. The second figure is on construction. And it's talking about to build up. It's talking about a foundation of a building. And then it's talking about blocks, which are going to be weight-bearing. It's talking about being established. And the, what we need to be established is in, in the faith. And the faith, as ye have been taught, this is not a matter for us of pride. This is a matter of total grace. And when we say here we have been taught the truth of the Word of God, we're not perfect in that either. We have to continue to grow. But God, according to His goodness, has given you to know the solid truths of the inspired Word of God. The 66 books of the Bible centered in the glory of God in Jesus Christ which the Apostle says are the riches of mercy to the full assurance, verse 2, of the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and the Father and of Christ. Ye have been taught. Do we know the blessings of our childhood and youth? Our nature takes for granted and our nature doesn't see what we see so that other Christians seeing what we are giving are staggered but it doesn't stagger us we become lackadaisical and critical we have been established because we were taught the faith by God's grace, the truth of Holy Scripture. We have received that by His grace. And therefore, we must be built up and we must be established in that faith. The great need of God's church today, God's church wherever she is, and right here, is not to remake the Christian faith to suit 
the culture, and to blend with the world tonight. That's not our need to remake, fit, or blend the truth that we have been taught with this world. The great need of the church tonight and until Jesus comes is to be established in the one that is given to us in the Holy Scripture. Not to explore, not to redefine, not to ask the question, is this really relevant anymore at all? Which is exactly the question that the devil wants us to ask. But our great need is to be built up in the one that God has given to be established and to be sure in it and by the grace of God to say, I believe it with all my heart. And I say it in all humility that I believe in him, the God and the Son of God of this book as Savior and Lord. And here I stand. And if you have doubts and confusion and struggles and you ask, well, is there really a God at all? And can truth really be known? Really? Really? Who do you, who do you make yourself out to be? You claim to know truth, the only truth. And when all kinds of enticing words and beguiling words, which would spoil, then we need to hear the urgent call of the Savior himself to your own heart and to mine. Walk ye in him in a true God-given faith. You need him for he's the way the truth and the life. Then there will be an evidence we will abound therein with thanksgiving. Now let's just step back and ask a simple question. Can you imagine someone who by grace, not perfectly, but through faith, walks in Christ and knows Jesus Christ. The King, the truth, the Savior, the one who we partook of this morning in communion. Can you imagine such a one who is in Christ and they're not thankful? Can we imagine a Christian who in his heart is walking with Christ, who is not at the bottom of that heart, thankful? Can we imagine that the heart is constantly emitting complaints, sour smells, harsh thoughts? Can we imagine that such a heart would not be joyful? content, happy, and thankful. Can you imagine that? 
to belong to Christ and not be thankful? If any man belonged to Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul belonged to Jesus Christ. Hook, line, and sinker. And the Apostle Paul, if you read his epistles, was a thankful man. He thanks God for his fellow Christians. He thanks God for his grace. He thanks God for God's care of him, even when he's in a prison cell. The apostle, you, you, we say, but if you knew my life, you'd say you wouldn't be very thankful either. Well, okay. The apostle Paul was a man who was bad-mouthed. He was slandered. He was hated. He was stoned. God gave him a thorn in the flesh that he himself said, I can't bear this anymore. He was well acquainted with the prisons in these towns because he had been in them. He was almost a frequent visitor. He was called a fool. He was betrayed by some of his closest fellow workers. And he was profoundly thankful. He was always thankful. He said, give thanks always for everything, for God's grace. And so the question is, do we walk in Christ as the predominant desire of our life? Then we will be thankful. So let's ask ourselves that question. How often does your soul, does my soul, express thanks to God in a day. Let's go back to Saturday. How, how many times did your heart simply say, thanks, Lord, on Saturday? Once, twice. You say, well, I had a particularly good day on Saturday. It might have been five or six. But note with me that the text says abounding in thanks. Abounding. And that's not the number of times, but abounding in thanks means something deep. That's the default setting of the Christian's heart. Thanks. And that's very convicting, and that's very humbling. And when we're thankful, then there's things we, we won't do, and there's one thing we will do. When we're thankful, then we won't go around putting our fellow believers down. We won't go around with bitterness against our fellow believers picking holes with our fellow believers over what they did to me, or saying to a fellow believer, child, husband, spouse, wife, I can't be happy with them. We won't go around wallowing in self-pity and saying, nothing good ever happens to me. Everybody else gets the breaks. 
We won't go around grumbling and complaining and jealous if thankfulness fills our soul and comes into our mouth we won't have any room in that mouth for grumbling we will be content and that's the focus there's contentment only in Christ Jesus because he is supreme and he is sufficient and he is of all mercy and truth and grace only he can make me happy only he and if I understood and understand that he is Lord my Lord then all the scraps that the world offers will be discarded and we won't be sucked into this fad or consumed with finding out about the real me but we will have all things in him we will have precious things the fullness of the love of God for us you will find all your soul needs whenever and wherever you are always in Christ you will find it in him for in him dwells all the fullness of God in him you are complete he is the one who is faithful and true and will always be that to you amen Lord we thank thee for the Holy Scriptures we thank thee for Christ Jesus we thank thee for salvation by grace we thank thee for the truth that we have been taught cause us to walk in him abounding in thanksgiving in Jesus name amen